Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast on the rise. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Sustained inflation is becoming a feature of the British political landscape for the first time in a generation. What could the political consequences of that be? Just to start with some figures, facts, Steve, there are those. Alternative ones, right? Well, no, actual godforsaken facts. So inflation reached 9% in the 12 months from April this year. And uh, given that we grew up in the heady days of low inflation in the, in the 90s and under New Labour, Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown, of course, friend of the podcast, the first time, I suppose, our Pickle generation, which I suppose uh, we're millennials, aren't we? I always I lose track. Yes, we are. So the first time millennials have sort of known high inflation, and it's a few different causes, which is pretty worth skirting on the length. I think that helps work out the sort of political ramifications yes, where we are. So, one of them is the war in Ukraine. That's having a big knock-on effect on gas prices and gas bills, which we talked about in the podcast. Yeah, and it's also set to have an increase on the price of grain, I believe it is, as well, moving forward. Because I think Ukraine produces something like 10% of the world's grain. Yeah. It looks like, actually, Russia's going to use that as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Certainly, you look at the accounts that are explaining the rise of inflation in sort of April, May. At that time, you've also got the supply chain disruption because of the lockdowns in China. So obviously there was a two-month-long lockdown in Shanghai as part of Xi Jinping's sort of zero-COVID strategy. And that led to a massive, massive backlog of container flights, made the ever-given look trivial in comparison all the way in Shanghai. And I think the lockdown's ended now, um, but still, I think they're still causing some sort of disruption. Factories not being able to get the parts they wanted. And there's no guarantee, I suppose, that couldn't happen in the future. So in terms of the reason for shocks, it's a very it's an external shock. Yep. So it's similar to the 70s, but actually it's quite a different context, isn't it? Yeah. The rise in oil prices is sort of similar level rise of gas prices, actually much higher than the 70s. But we've not quite seen the massive inflation where I think prices double over the 70s. But I think in terms of the politics of it, if we go to that, uh, the government and certainly the tabloids, looking at a few of the tabloid headlines that we've seen about some of the strikes which are going to happen in Britain, they're sort of seeing this as a, a summer of discontent and maybe the government look, looking like it might make political capital on the back of these strikes. Do you think it's going to play out like it did in the seventies? Well, it, I mean, I, in, in to a degree, I think the answer to that is yes, because I think the government is being idiotic in in their assumption that this situation is potentially beneficial for them. Like Ted Heath was in power for a, a number of you know high profile strike actions and things like that, and guess what? As prime minister of the day and the Conservatives as the government of the day. They got the blame for it. It was one of the things that ultimately led to Heath losing. 
um, and Callahan coming into power. So the fact that the, the 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 current conservative government seems to think that oh we can we we can you know utilize this as yet another kind of wedge issue to to move forward and keep our base happy etc cetera, etc cetera. this is clearly going to be a bad thing for labor or whatever i genuinely feel they've lost the plot on this i don't see how how this functions because for them because ultimately as the government of the day they need to at least be seen to try and resolve these issues and they're not as demonstrated with the rail strikes that are uh, that are going to be happening, where we know for a fact that Grant Shapps, Transport Secretary, hasn't turned up to any meetings with the unions to try and resolve this since March. A few things there. So, first of all, fall of governments. That I suppose there's two governments that fall in the seventies because of the failure to deal with inflation. It's the Heath government, as you say, um, and the the three day week. Um, Mr. Harold Wilson, of course, big friend yeah. of the show. Uh, but then, it, of course, the winter discontent is the union wage yeah. uh, bargaining leads to the end of the Callaghan government. Um, and I think, so I, I think in terms of the, the politics, I think you're right, inflation sinks governments. And it's not just the Heath and Callaghan governments, it's Jimmy Carter as well uh, in America. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, another friend of the podcast, also massively affected by inflation in the late 60s, which is... But again, that's a slightly different inflation. That's mainly inflation caused by the Vietnam War spending, the Great Society spending, and the fact that Lyndon Johnson then lies about that spending. <laughs> so slightly different. On the other hand, I think you're right. That it, it, in terms of actually inflation throughout history, it's about what a government's going to do to get a grip of that inflation. Do you, want, do you know what Henry I did to get a grip on inflation in 1124? Is it going to be something like try to acquire more, more gold? by invading France. Well, so it's interesting you should say that because actually there was uh, inflation in the price of silver and that's partly because there wasn't enough silver being discovered Yeah, and uh, the Anglo-Saxon rules meant that the treasury had to keep issuing regular silver. They did need silver as well to pay for soldiers in France. So yeah. I can give you maybe a quarter of a mark okay. for that. Problem was that um, as there wasn't enough silver, there were a couple of things happening. One of them is they were adding tin to the currency. Uh, which was called debasing it, and obviously that I mean, especially in an era where uh, it, it, it's about the weight of silver. So if you've yeah. got four silver coins, but then you add tin to it, so it actually it's you almost well, there's not enough yeah. silver here, so you end up needing six silver coins rather than four, and that leads to massive inflation. There's also uh, what they call coin clipping, and that would be when money is to try and make up for the fact that there wasn't enough silver. Yeah, would essentially take a little bit off those coins and melt yeah, them down and new yeah. coins. And and this was leading to the, a loss of confidence in the coinage, leading to massive inflation, which is very similar to, to what's happening in the 60s and 70s. And so Henry the First Society needs to restore confidence in the coinage as set an example. So what he does is he chops off the hand of every single one of his monies and then castrates them. I'll be honest. I'm not surprised I didn't get that. And that's the tough, decisive action that was needed. You could say he had the balls to deal with the problem. Sure. You're not advocating this as a policy. I'm not advocating. No, I'm I'm not <laughs> sure the Rachel... We're not going to uh, try and cut off Andrew Bailey's uh, left hand. All I'm saying is Rachel Ruth didn't respond to my lengthy email. <laughs> But I think it's about so. So it's, I think it's partly what the government going to do, and it's interesting that one of the things that someone like William Hague 
you remember William Hague? I do. Uh, he um, tr- he considers the leader tragically early. Uh, but he said that one of the things that government had to do to get on top of inflation was to raise interest rates. Now, that seems like a not necessarily the best thing to do because obviously it, traditionally if um you, you raise interest rates and that means that it's more attractive to save money and therefore you don't spend as much money and therefore inflation goes down i don't see how that works to curb inflation when inflation is mainly caused by massive external shocks into massive price rises yeah absolutely like the the fact that this is all an external uh, uh externally caused uh, inflation for, for for the most part means that we are not in a in, in the kind of like i mean i don't want to use the term traditional like monetary policy area because because like i'm not an expert in these sorts of things but like your standard oh oh how do we encourage spending encourage saving like balance doesn't necessarily a- a- apply here. In fact, I'd say if you go down that route, you probably end up making this, the the situation worse. Because as as you say, the if inflation is is high, you try and encourage spending. But the problem you've got is we're already um, on a little bit of a kind of like a, a, a parapet for ju- jumping off potentially into in, into recession, and um, not just in the UK but but globally, or at least in significant parts of the globe, which means. If you end up in a situation where you're encouraging savings, that's taking money out of the economy, which therefore means you're not stimulating the economy, which therefore means you're more likely to see recession. So ultimately, you can't take necessarily take that course of action unless you're actually very confident that the economy is in a very healthy place, which... There's some interesting data on this actually, where I can't remember who it was. I feel it was like um, it was like one of the Sky News, well, former Sky News, current I think GB News, like reporters and editors, Darren something or other. I can't remember his surname. Grimes. No, not Grimes. Um, like an actual journalist. Oh, um, um, yeah. Um, I just follow the Christie, so I don't know any of this. No, um, and uh, he uh, basically put out a thread, which was say, which was just like. Yeah, if you look at the top level kind of like economic picture, you know, doesn't look great. But then when you actually dig into a load of bits and pieces of it, it's actually not as bad as it looks because we're still kind of seeing like some of the negative elements that are kind of like almost like the uh, the, the economic long COVID effect uh, almost, where you've got a lot of things which are drains on the economy in, that are kind of still being removed. Um, and that actually, when you remove those from the equation, actually, it's it's a much rosier picture. Not great, but relatively healthy. So there's a, there's a few things that I think one of them is that you're right in terms of if if you have if everyone, as a result of rising prices, spends less money, then you have a demand problem. Yeah. Which then the traditional thing to do would be the government step. Well, the Keynesian solution is the government steps in. And, provides a stimulus that's not going to happen to Rishi Sunak. no it's not and therefore I think it's interesting that actually in terms of the the government response to COVID which was the government was going to spend a lot of money to get the economy going well through the shutdown doesn't seem to have translated into lessons about how you might deal with this financial yeah. crisis um and it, it, maybe it's economic long COVID I feel it's also it's a sort of it's the 
hanging. It's a, it's a long Great Recession yeah. as well. So the global financial crisis of 2008, massive, massive repercussions. And I think you can sort of see the um, the rise of Trump and Brexit then as well, because in 2008, the Republican Party massively divides over the stimulus bills, yeah. which leads to the sort of rise of the Tea Party, and you can see the emergence of Trump there. Um, you can see the fall, say, fall out of the Eurozone and um, the way that Hungary isn't bailed out, and you can sort of see the rise of Auburn in there as well. Yeah, you can see how the uh, Eurozone crisis feeds into the Brexit narratives as well. And also, if we assume that actually a lot of Brexit isn't just about people wanting a better trade relationship with Europe, that actually there is a bit of a, there's a strong link between austerity and Brexit and the fact that 2008 brings in a Labour government, uh, no it doesn't, <laughs> um, brings in a Conservative government who um, have a narrative about how Labour's overspending caused the yeah. financial crisis and that then led to massive. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think there's, I think there's, there's partly it's that as well. I, th I think the other thing with the seventies is that, um, and just to go back to sort of that context and think about the politics of it, I think there's a few different things. One of them is that in the seventies, because you've got this feeling that Britain was becoming ungovernable, yeah. and that's partly because of, as you say, the failure of governments to deal with inflation. It's partly because of a lot of the trade union movement bringing in wage demands of like 27% or what have you. Um, it's partly because of sort of rise in troubles and terrorism, which you're seeing, say, like the Birmingham pub bombings, yeah. which I don't think there is that sense now. I think there is a, there's a massive discontent and anger at democratic politics, but I think that's more at the politicians. I think, I feel it's, it's, it's not that people think that Britain's ungovernable. I think it's more that the government just isn't up to the job. Yeah. And I think that's a slightly different thing. Uh, uh, absolutely. And fundamentally, it goes back to the point where if you're the government of the day, you need to provide solutions to these problems. And if you're Boris Johnson's government, well, you're not very good at finding solutions. You're very good at finding headlines, which, you know, last about a week at max and then fade away into obscurity in, in the hopes that you'll find another one to get you through the next week. So let's think about then the wage issue. So you, you sort of mentioned this already, that the government may well think, aha, the unions, they're making impossible wage demands. They're going on strike. This is the 70s. We're going to end it with Margaret Thatcher, Mark II, or Liz Truss, as she's known. <laughs> now, again, I think there's, there's a few different things here. And one of them is, so Duncan Weldon makes an interesting point in his book about on the British economy, 200 years of muddling through, that although inflation is really, really bad in the 70s, so prices double, over the decade, actually, you also have, during that time, you have increasing car ownership, some more homes own cars for the first time, increasing home ownership as well. So in the early 70s, home ownership goes above 51%. And also, in terms of the ideologically, you're going off the back of the post-war consensus, what some people call butskillism, because they liked portmanteaus. And therefore... Actually, but it's a very different context now. So Paul Johnson, um, of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, wrote in the Times, and um, uh, he talked about um, the li living standards for the different unions. And it tends to be, as we've said a few times on the podcast, it's public sector unions yeah. that well, the only workers. Because and this is the other changing context: is most 
40% of workers in the 70s were in trade unions. Mm-hmm. Now, mo- you've got increasing in certain unemployment, you've got people in the gig economy. Actually, there isn't really a, in some places like GMB are trying to do great stuff with some of the Uber drivers, say, but it's a very, very different context. So, Paul Johnson saying the average teacher is 8% off, 8% worse off than they were a decade ago. Doctors, it's about 10% worse off. Nurses, it's about 7% worse off. It's a really, really, really different context to a period we've had three decades of big government spending, where there's then this sort of ideological backlash from the right. But also, it's not like these, you've not got, you've got workers who are asking essentially to have real terms pay increases. Mm-hmm. And Teachers, doctors, and nurses are all trusted more than the government. Yeah, absolutely. And the the, the figures are uh, around uh, the kind of like the the pay situation for like the economy as a whole, but also specifically um, public sector workers are, are really quite interesting. In that, I, I, I'm not getting the, these figures exactly right, but they they give you a kind of a ballpark um, kind of like indication of the situation. But I think across the economy as a whole wages of whatever period it is have gone up by like four four percent below the rate of inflation fundamentally across multiple years in the public sector as a result of austerity and and various public choices uh, choices that have been made by by governments over the past decade or so that has decreased that like uh, pay has effectively decreased by somewhere between five and i think it's eight percent so the public sector workers have actually had a much worse deal when it comes to pay than than the private sector. Now, there are there are other trade offs. The public sectors, for the most part, outside of policy decisions that have been made by the government, have like certainty in their jobs and, and things like that. Like, there's very little. Uh, there's no risk of the of you know the government going under in in, in that kind of way as there is. Don't for those off on that because that was the entire basis. Of well, the- quite. Uh, but um, but yeah, but they're like from a from a wage perspective, like they've not come out of this very well at all. Uh, and as a result of that, like I think it's it's going to be very hard for the government to win an argument with trade unions and uh, who are who are striking, because all the trade unions are just going to do is go through their members and go, you you're a single mother, you've got a kid. This is your one job. You haven't had a pay rise in however many years it is. We're going to put you up front on Good Morning Bro. I think it's so. I think it's it's also that most of the public can see the results of that underfunding mm. when they pick their kids up from school, yeah, or when they take their dad to the hospital, and you know it was noticeable. You could go in during schools during the new labour years and you could tell the increasing investment that was put in. I'll go back to my old primary school with interactive whiteboards. Uh, my old secondary school, when I was there, during the Labour government at the time, had a new entrance built. You know, there, was, there was investment that went in. And I think you've, you've seen the opposite effect now. You can see the backlog of waiting lists. Everyone knows someone who's waiting for the appointment. Yeah, well, everyone knows someone who's been waiting for at A and E for eight hours, or everybody knows somebody who's been waiting for their passport to come through, and all of these different different things. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's an awful lot of 
um, things happening in the background, which everybody is, if, even if they're not aware of everything directly, there will be one or two things that they are aware of and they will be able to say, oh, actually. And, and again, I sort of point, I sort of said this, but maybe make it a bit more explicit. In the 70s, you have the breakdown of that post-war consensus yeah. where essentially that sort of Keynesianite, uh, where Labour and Tory governments accepted the need you had a strong government spending, strong welfare state, which broke down in the 70s. Heath sort of tries to fiddle about with it. And then Thatcher comes in the 79 and issues in what I'm just going to call neoliberalism, yeah. just to annoy some centrist commentators. And that is that ideological consensus is also breaking down. Um, there isn't yet, I don't think there's, there's sort of, there's a remnants of a, of a new alternative potentially but i don't think as you said this government isn't providing one but it's not like this crisis has been brought about by government spending too much money um i suppose just before we go on to to, to more of the stuff, the i suppose the flip side is if the government's going to try and make political capital it's going to try and do it out of the rmt um because and there's the stat that's trotted out about how tube drivers are paid uh, drivers paid 58 grand a year or something like that yeah. but actually again it's a it's not, the tube, it's not the tube drivers that are the bulk of this. It's every other worker who's earning 18, 19, 20 grand a year. And actually, when you've got discussions on loose women sort of saying that trade, obviously workers should be backing <laughs> the right to strike in solidarity with the workers, you think that maybe the government sort of misread the situation. Just a little bit. And, and again, it's part of the, the strike sort of happening because you've had £2 billion taken out of the national rail network. You've had billions of pounds mate um taking out transport for london as well and uh obviously we were recording this before the wakefield by-election result before we've had the national rail strikes um i was up in wakefield for the election campaign and well the, the trains on the friday were very very creaky but the buses looked at i looked at a couple of bus stops all the buses were cancelled there were no buses going anywhere and so um Again, thinking about the importance of the buses and transport, I just think that you're going to have voters looking at the government saying, what are you doing to get the transport system working? And they're not doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was one of the things that um, I seem to recall when Corbyn was, was Labour leader, a load of, like one of his PMQs, he just, like, it wasn't even like a, a time where it's just like, oh, you clearly need to use all of your questions on whatever the issue of the day was it was one of those weeks where it's just like well let's let's see what what's said and like you just kind of throw out a few things and see what sticks he made he made a point of asking questions about buses and bus timetables or, or something like that and and, and and like investment in 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 them and a load of people online absolutely mocked him for it and it's just like well no you guys are absolutely wrong on this because buses are really important for an awful lot of people in this country. Well, actually, it's interesting you bring up Corbyn because uh, at several points here, the, the, the Conservatives would make the claim that Corbyn's going to take Britain back to the 70s. Yeah. And in a very similar way to when there were shortages in supermarkets during the panic buying during lockdown, the people on the right were then trying to say, huh, this is what we're like if we had Corbyn in charge. Like you, you've literally got Boris yeah. Johnson in charge. I think, again, you're sort of seeing, ah, look at people, you know, that the Conservatives said that Corbyn would take Britain back to the 70s, and yet here we are, and they're trying to say, you've got Daily Mail headlines explicitly saying, oh, we are back in the 70s, and you think that this was what you were meant to prevent. This was literally what you were running against, and yet, so by your own definitions of success, you have failed. But hey-ho. So, so I suppose summing up then, 
the political consequences of inflation generally are bad for governments and therefore bad for this Conservative Party, especially one that isn't going to have a grip on it. Yeah, pr- pr- pretty much. I struggle to see a situation short of a change in leadership and even then a, an awful lot of the runners and riders that you would like that are being talked about as potential you know next uh leaders i can't see any of them and i'm, and I'm including the likes of like jeremy hunt in this as well being able to get to grips with these sorts of things because ultimately they require the sort of um strong action which a significant part of the Conservative Party, whichever way they, they they decide to go, will oppose. You go to if you decide to go lean into well, okay, the situation actually requires a Keynesian response, and we need to spend money, and actually, you know, heaven forbid, actually level some places up in some capacity, invest in infrastructure or, or, or whatever. Well, Steve Baker's not going to be on, 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 in, engaged with that, so you've lost the ERG. Um, or whatever they're called these days, because there's well, the the anti-vaccine network well, or whatever the, they are. The COVID recovery group. I yeah, think. they're not quite anti-vaccine. It's more like they're pro-vaccine yeah, yeah. and anti-everything else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you've got to annoy them. If you kind of go, you decide to go all in. I think as we said in previous episodes on like the notion of well, let's go, you know, Singapore on Thames. Let's try and try and reform and uh, the, the law so that we're a low regulation, low tax country and try and basically grow a way out through mass investments in, in, in different, for, for, for a few limited sectors, which can, to a degree, function for an economy as a whole, but doesn't necessarily function as an economy for people. If they go down that, that sort of direction, you're then going to have your Jeremy Hunts, your Tom Tugan hats, your... Um, you know, you would what would have been the one nation wing of the party, which no longer really exists anymore, um, kind of up in arms about again and not not supporting that. Um, so they're kind of screwed, I suspect, in terms of being able to develop a meaningful response to any of this. Um, and they're definitely screwed by trying to do so whilst uh, Johnson is in power, because Johnson and and and, and again, it is possible for poor leaders to still be successful in in certain ways. Richard Nixon was a terrible president for multiple, multiple reasons, but he had a very effective vice president who got everything done for him. Um, Yeah, Spiro just ran everything, basically. Oh, I thought he was massively corrupt. He was that as well, but he still, like, got stuff done, is the thing. Um, So, but Johnson has surrounded himself with incompetence, and yes, men and yes, women, and there's there nobody there actually pushing to actually get things sorted properly. And even if they were, they're not being empowered. So you're stuck with an absolute mess of response to what is a very serious situation that affects everybody in this country. Before we before I come back on that, I, I can't believe I said this on the podcast, I think you'll be a bit half on Richard Nixon. <laughs> Statements you never thought you'd say. I'm pretty sure that Spiro Agnew is the reason Nixon never thought he'd be impeached because they thought they'd never make Agnew president. And as soon as then Agnew is implicated in the massive corruption scandal and it brings in, what's his name? Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller becomes VP, oh, yeah, and yeah. then that becomes. I think I'm right saying. I know it's Gerald Ford comes in as VP, yeah. and then 
Um, and then I, I think that's sort of seen as actually the Republicans can can get rid of it. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things I remember this was a, like an analysis I, I read and this was quite some time ago, but it, but it's, it's one of those things. It's history, like different interpretations of the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but Nixon did go to China on like acne, but we'll, we'll, we'll park, park that. I'm very aware of Nixon, Nixon's achievements. Uh, there's an entire Manic Street Preacher song about them. I think the other thing with inflation is that <laughs> it's not just that the government. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. So it's not just that the government is uh, can't formulate a policy solution. It's also, as we said, the causes of inflation at the moment they are external shocks, and therefore, actually, even if even if you had uh, a competent government, I mean, actually, you, you look at the, the Brown government again, Gordon Brown, very flawed prime minister, yeah. uh, but was absolutely on top of the detail what you had to do to deal with a global financial crash. But that didn't save him politically because of, well, because of the effect of the economic yeah. crash. So even if you know what the problem is and you think you've got a way of dealing with it, if it's a massive external shock and it happens on your watch, it's really hard to... Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm just trying to think of a segue. If you are not funding this podcast currently and want to shake the blame onto other listeners of the podcast, that almost works, doesn't it? Yeah. What would you have to do, Steve? You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where for a couple of quid every month, you can gain access to unique content, um, early episodes that we put out for our, our backers over there. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's all, all fun and games. Uh, head over, take a look, and uh, hopefully see you there. Our website's notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. I'm at Paperback Writer. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs> <laughs>